All right. Are we, we live? Are officially live. I think we're live. Awesome. All right. Well, hello there, everybody. Uh, this is for the Truth and the Word Facebook group. And my name is Justin. And with me is Matt. And sure. we're going to be talking a little bit today about uh, a couple of topics that are utterly fascinating. And I think that it's really easy just to get lost down the rabbit hole of either one of them. But I think that they're very important topics to to discuss and, and to kind of have a, a, a grounding on and an understanding on because there are passages in scripture that can be very hard to understand and that can make it appear one way uh, or the other. So what we're going to be talking about initially is the concept of predestination, whether God actually predestines anybody to anything, um, what predestination means. Does it mean predestined to heaven, predestined to hell? Is everybody predestined? Is nobody predestined? Are some people predestined? Et uh, and of course, what does salvation actually look like? What does it entail? How does our predestination uh, play a part in that? How does grace play a part in that and uh, everything else? So I think that's pretty much what is on the agenda for today, for this evening, rather. Um, so with that, uh, I'll, I'll toss the ball over to you to get us, get us started, Matt. All right. So salvation could be understood within four steps. And I've written those out, and I actually do have scriptural references for each phase. Now, the first step, as we all know, is repentance. If you want to, if you want to, uh, once you, once you accept Christianity, of course, you have to repent. And uh, after that, you have to believe in Jesus specifically, and you have to receive him, receive the merits of his, of his sacrifice on the cross through baptism specifically. And after that, you have to remain in him. And so these are the four steps of salvation that we were that we will be talking about today, and we will also be talking about predestination, uh, whether those who are predestined uh, can in fact lose their salvation, or if they still have free will at all to do anything that they want, anything that they want, or if it's all a set in stone, they don't really actually have any free choices. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And um, so it's important to realize that repentance is absolutely necessary. Um, if you do want to become a Christian, of course, that's the first and foremost thing that you got to do. And then the second thing is that you have to believe in Jesus specifically, and then you have to receive him and remain in him. So those are very, very important things. And so what does predestination mean? Like, how, how do we, how should we understand that, Justin? Well, the Bible does use the word predestined. Um, and I think that there is a little bit of liberality, at least in how the church understands the concept of predestination. Um, I was going to pull up a catechism passage here, but I think it's maybe simpler and easier just to summarize uh, that, the, you know, the term predestination can mean a couple things. Uh, in the first place, we know that God is outside of time. Uh, and so in a sense, everything that happens in a sense to him existing in kind of a a cosmic now that is outside of time has already happened. It's not that God knows the future before it happens. It's that he's outside of time. And so he knows what will already come to pass. But that predestination, that kind of predestination does not necessarily entail a lack of freedom on our part. Uh, it simply means that God is outside of that whole process and understands exactly what it takes for um, or exactly what is going to come to pass given our free decisions. Um, mm. Now, that doesn't mean that he can't also uh, interact with uh, history and shape it in his own paths. Um, and it, it seems to be the case, in fact, in a lot of ways he does, whether it is 
and we talked about this a little bit in the past, uh, you know, <laughs> scripture speaks of him, you know, guiding the flow of history in lots of ways. So for instance, sure. uh, with, with Moses and Pharaoh, he, he seems to, at least in some capacity, harden Pharaoh's heart. He seems to, in some capacity, send the Babylonians and the Assyrians uh, after the, the Israelites as, as a chastisement or a punishment. Right. Uh, and so he seems to work in history in a real way. Now, are those foreordained? And, and, and I think the, the big issue here that we need to understand is, 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 not so much whether or not God foreordains certain events, but whether or not he's foreordaining the ultimate events, which is to say uh, whether or not each and every one of us winds up in heaven or winds up in hell, because that's really the big issue. God can foreordain lots of different things um, that don't necessitate somebody going to hell. So the real question, I think um, you're free to beg to differ on this is whether or not God, you know, predestines people to hell uh, or to heaven or vice versa. Um, if, he if he does, then, uh, if he does, then our free choices won't really make a difference. And we're not really obligated. That's what I was thinking about before was that we're not really obligated to reform our lives if no matter what we do, because we are the elect, we will end up in heaven. So there's really no motivation to reform your moral life once you become Christian, which is something that Paul actually commands the new Christians to do. He says, you know, don't do this, that, and everything else. Yeah. Because if you do, you're not going to make it. And so he's writing to reform, believers and telling them, don't do these things or you won't yeah. inherit the kingdom. So moral reform is necessary, and if moral reform is necessary, then it would follow from that that we have free choices and that those choices matter and that they make a difference, mm -hmm. which is to say that although God does predestine certain people to, to heaven, um, that doesn't mean that their free choices are not involved in the process. It doesn't mean that they still, you know, they don't have to refrain from doing these things, all that. They, they still have an obligation to reform their moral life. Um, even if they are predestined, even if you are among the elect, the reason you are is because God knows that you will uh, continually choose to love him, regardless of how many times you slip up. So um, definitely moral reform and all that is uh, very, very uh, important. Even if you think that you are saved or you believe that you are saved, it's always possible that at the end of your life, you could fall into some kind of grave sin. Then I guess it means you were never really Christian in the first place. No, it means that you just had freedom and you chose to abuse that freedom. So I didn't mean to go on too long of a tangent there, but you can continue if you want. No. Uh, so here's what Paul writes. Uh, we know that in, in, in everything, God works for good for those who love him. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. I believe that comes from Romans, um, which is uh, as part of the, I think it's the, the Roman road, as they say, is Romans chapter seven, I want to say. Uh, let me see. This is counsel. This is or citations. Romans eight, Romans eight, duh. Romans eight. I knew that. Um, and so here we see Paul using this language of predestination and that, so there's, there's a secondary meaning of predestination, which can simply mean that humanity is itself predestined, uh, in order to be with God. And so he has predestined us as believers and you know he can predestine certain people in a positive sense and say well you for sure are going to go to heaven because in order for my plans to be fulfilled i need you to exist in a unique way uh it's yep. very likely he did that with someone like mary uh, it's very likely he did that with someone like john the baptist um and a few other people who have been regarded as you know amongst the holiest of holies um but you know he also works with us where we are there's what, what's the there's a common phrase it's like god doesn't uh, choose the qualified. He he qualifies the chosen or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. That's, yeah, that's yeah, that's it. that's the that's the phrase. So you know, as Catholics, we can be comfortable with the concept that there are certain people that God 
decides for whatever reason are definitely going to heaven and so he gives more to them than he may give to others uh in the because sense that he knows that they will continue to receive it mm -hmm. or that he knows that they will continue to choose to receive it right and i don't think i don't think it means they're not free it simply means that he knows that they will participate with his grace with with his divine life in a way that that fulfills what it is he has foreordained to have happen but that's vastly different from the concept of saying you know matthew i'm sorry but i'm just not going to give you the grace you need to go to heaven you are reprobate and i owe you nothing we got into a discussion uh with a couple of your friends last time we did this one of the last times we did this and the concept of you know if you go into walmart and give out 20 dollars bills to people well you don't owe anybody a 20 dollars bill and so you know if 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 that's the case then you know if i give out 10 20 bills nobody else has the right to be indignant because i gave freely uh as i chose and and you know some people got it some people didn't but the problem is that that analogy makes a couple assumptions about god being in a sense finite and also not willing the salvation of all it actually flies in the face of a couple of scriptural citations um including uh both paul and peter uh, paul writes to timothy that god wills the salvation of all now we know that god is omnipotent uh, and if you're omnipotent, you're all powerful. You have all power that exists. If you are omnipotent, if you have all power, and if you will the salvation of all, then it logically follows that everyone should be saved unless salvation is dependent upon something other than your will. And that seems to be the case with our salvation. God wills the salvation of all. And that means he makes it possible in some capacity and maybe not even in the same capacity for some as for others. For instance, uh, in first Peter three, we hear about Jesus when he dies, he descends into hell and he preaches to the spirits who were in prison, who were disobedient in the days of Noah. I don't think it was exclusively just to them, but Peter's telling us in a, a shorthand, he's preaching to the people who were bad. And this isn't just a victory lap. He is presenting the gospel to these people who had no way of knowing the gospel, who had no knowledge of the life of grace. They had hearts of stone as opposed to hearts of flesh. They hadn't been sprinkled with clean water, all of these things, right? But he still presents them with the gospel. So we can always trust that while we are limited in our mortal life to the things on this earthly plane, more or less, um, and we shouldn't presume to go beyond them. Nevertheless, we know that God can work beyond those things. And so uh, we know that God predestines nobody to hell. Uh, and that means he gives to all people in some capacity sufficient grace such that they could attain heaven. Uh, otherwise, he is not love. God is love. God wills the, the good of all. And again, it flies in the face of Scripture that God wills that no one should perish, but that all would have eternal life. That's and so we take that as an axiomatic fact. And the thing about uh, a lot of our friends who come to alternate conclusions is when you're coming, when you're talking about scripture, what you're really doing is you're choosing, you know, there there's two, here's two scriptures. This one says God wills the salvation of all. And this one says God predestines in certain ways, or, you know, it says something else that seems contradictory, which, yeah. which of these two do you give precedence to? And it's not apparently clear from scripture, which one you should give precedence to and which one may be simply speaking in a hyperbolic fashion. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly clear that that scripture often you uses hyperbole in order to accentuate um, or emphasize or stress certain points. So we'll have uh, universal statements for things that aren't universal. Simple one comes to mind is when they're baptizing in Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem goes out. Uh, or I think all of Jerusalem went out to see John the Baptist, but it seems pretty doubtful that actually all of Jerusalem went out to see him, but it's simply a shorthand way of saying 
man, the whole city was enamored by this guy preaching, you know, in the desert. And and we see this in lots of places. I mean, Jesus uses it. And he says, you must, you know, hate, hate your father and your mother and your spouse and your children in order to follow me. You know, he doesn't actually mean that because God doesn't want us to hate. Uh, but what he means is prefer nothing else. So he's using hyperbole. He's using turns of phrases. And we have to be able to understand those. And if, if you give if you give weight or, or too much weight or too much emphasis to one over the other, uh, I think you wind up um, coming up with a very distorted image of God that has him as this, you know, big sky bully. And, and it's usually coming out of a really well-meaning uh, angle, right? Because we, for instance, if, if God is sovereign, we don't want to deny his sovereignty, right? If God is omnipotent, we don't want to deny his omnipotence. And so if you start with the, the idea that God has all power and God is sovereign, and you mix in there a couple of other things uh, like sola gracia, which is true. We as Catholics profess uh, salvation is by grace alone, you know, and it's yes. right out of the Bible. Paul says that, too. Um, but it seems to be the case that you can you can read that and you can come to multiple competing conclusions. And then you have to be informed by the rest of what's going on in Scripture in order to understand properly what that is. Anyway, it's just a long roundabout way of saying as Catholics, we firmly believe that God can and probably does predestine some people to heaven. We firmly believe that God does not predestine people to hell because that is in conflict with his very essence. That does not mean that people don't go to hell, but it simply means that salvation is a two-way street. If I can be a little curt here, you know, God is not a rapist. God does not force himself on us. He does not force his love on us. He, you know, maybe slaps us <laughs> occasionally and gets our attention. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, there's what, what's that? There's another term of phrase. There's two people in the world. Those those that say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. And, and we either submit in humility and obedience and follow him. We abide uh, or else we don't. And if we don't, we we get what we are seeking. Uh, but what we are seeking is not our ultimate end. It is a, a lesser end. And so a lesser end over the course of an infinite eternity is hell. Hmm. Then we see the consequences of this in uh, Matthew 25, specifically in the last judgment scene when uh, Jesus condemns those who failed to do what they were supposed to do. And uh, so there definitely is some, some sort of accountability on our part to do certain things. And uh, that's actually something I want to talk about next was the accountability to um, or the necessity to, to remain in good works and that these works aren't necessarily our works, but they were works that were created in Christ Jesus before we were born so that we should walk in them as, as in Ephesians 2. So that's mm -hmm. another thing I wanted to talk about was that uh, we can't actually boast in these good works because these are absolutely necessary. Uh, certain works are definitely necessary for us to uh, retain uh, salvation. And uh, we can see examples of this. Uh, this one I brought up here. Um, it's in uh, Acts 26, verse 20. Mm -hmm. And it goes as follows. Uh, on the contrary, first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout the whole country of Judea and then to the Gentiles, I preached the need to repent and turn to God and to do works giving evidence of repentance. And so I don't think, I actually have a couple other verses that we can turn to, but I don't think that the Bible would encourage boasting by telling us to remain in good works and perform these good works if these good works are necessary for us to keep salvation, as we can see in Matthew 25, when they failed to perform certain works and they lost salvation. So that's another thing that's very, very important to keep in mind is that there are certain works that we are obligated to keep and do that doesn't necessarily um, leave any room for boasting whatsoever right. because they are God's works. They aren't necessarily our works that we're choosing to do out of the kindness of our hearts. Um, they were God's works that he prepared for us before we were saved, before we ever even had a relationship with him. He prepared those works for us so that we can glorify him. And uh, that's that's how it works. And it's not necessarily boasting. I know that we've had discussions with uh, one of my friends on here before about how, you know, 
uh, Ephesians 2 leaves out any grounds for boasting in any, any uh, form whatsoever. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, um, anyway, you can uh, talk about that if you want to, uh, Ephesians 2. Uh, yeah. No, actually, I was just thinking about that passage because it does speak about, uh, you know, uh, we are God's – I'm looking at the NIV because it's the first one that pulled up. You know, we're God's handiwork per- created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so we are designed for these good works. Now, God is the source of all that is good. There is nothing that is good apart from God and anything that is good is good precisely in so much as it participates in the very being and essence of God. Right. Uh, This is, this is a classical theism position. This is a Thomistic position, et cetera. Right. God is, is omnibenevolence. He's all good. And so anything that is good in his created world is good precisely because it participates as much as it can in his very, uh, his very nature. Right. So, the, the process of salvation is two things. Paul speaks about us not boasting first, um, because what he is saying is our actual salvation does not come apart, come about by any works that we do. And that's absolutely true as Catholics. We profess that 100 percent. You cannot earn salvation. In fact, the first moment of salvation is completely a free gift. Um, it comes about as God eliciting from you a response through grace. And at that point, you begin the process and you can either resist it or you can go along with it. You can you can resist it in pride, which was the first sin, the sin of Adam, the sin of all humanity bound up in the one man created without original sin that wasn't Jesus. Uh, or you can submit in humility uh, and follow the image of the God man himself, Jesus, who became incarnate, became one of us. So your your initial moment of salvation, that's not yours, right? Um, that's something that is completely up to God. However, after that point, you have an obligation to cooperate with grace. When you are cooperating with grace, you're doing good. And when you're doing good, that's something that is really actually good. And it is something that is credited to you because it is your cooperation with grace. However, it is still 100% the work of grace because, again, any and all good we ever do comes about precisely because uh, we are cooperating with grace. Uh, the flip side of that is any evil that we do is because we are resisting grace. And so uh, this uniquely makes the good that we do utterly and completely the work of God and the evil that we do utterly and completely our works, as opposed to uh, other positions. I think a lot of the Calvinistic predestination sorts of positions, obviously, I don't want to pigeonhole all of them. I know that there's you know 15 different flavors of nuance in there. Um, but just as a general rubric, uh, the way that they present things is, you know, Everything is completely up to God, who is utterly sovereign, including whether or not you're going to be saved or not, whether or not you're going to commit a sin or not, uh, whether or not you're going to resist or you're going to abide or you're just going to be you know, given over completely to your corrupt, sinful nature. And that, again, that doesn't square with an image of God who is a father who loves us, who wants what is best for us, uh, a father who seeks to take away our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh, right? And so he's always working on us. He's always working with us and for us and through us and in the spirit in order to further and further conform us to his son. At any point in that journey, we are able to say, no, I'm done. We're able to turn around and and walk away. That's why even St. Paul says at the end of his life, um, he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. Um, you know, he, he knows where he's going, but at the same time, he also says, um, uh, where's, I'm gonna have to find it here really quickly. I had it pulled up earlier. I he think says basically where he said, uh, that he doesn't presume to know, uh, uh, whatever, whatever we go. I, I forget how it goes. God, God will judge me. It's basically what he says. Yeah. Uh, I, I know, I know of nothing against me, but that doesn't mean I am, uh, I'll have to look up the passage here in a minute, but mm-hmm. uh, but basically, I can find it for for you guys in the 
whenever you take over talking, I'll look it up here. But, um, but yeah, there are many passages where Paul describes himself as fighting certain things so as to uh, keep the faith. And he describes a thorn in his flesh that he continually battles against. And, you know, if he was, if he understood himself to be predestined no matter what, then he wouldn't feel the need to battle this thing. And yeah. um, he says that he flogs himself lest he become disqualified. Yes. And of course, that's another very, very powerful verse that speaks of the necessity to fight um, the desires of the flesh and all of that to walk in the spirit, which is an absolute necessity. But First Corinthians four four is what the passage is. Is I'm not aware of anything against myself. So he, you know, he's operating in in what we'd call the virtue of hope, right? He believes in God, he trusts in God, he has faith in God, he's not aware of anything against himself. So he has the true hope of heaven. But he then says, But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And so he's not presuming that he is saved. Hence, he also says he works out his salvation with fear and trembling. Hence, he says, uh, you know, he has the thorn inside. He he pummels and subdues his body, you know, all these other things. And so when you when you take all of Paul, not just a snippet of Paul, but you take all of Paul, uh, the whole Pauline corpus, you start to see this far more holistic picture of the process of salvation. And it is a process. And it begins, you know, with that initial moment when God reaches out to us. Uh, that may be the the first moment where we receive grace. And, and in fact, as Catholics, we actually divide grace into two different types. There's what we call actual and sanctifying grace. Um, and here's a quick aside. And I often give this example. Um, imagine. Hmm, okay. So we're we're designed to be a holy, blessed, shiny, beautiful receptacle. Uh, probably mm -hmm. not for carbonated from sam's club but <laughs> we're designed to be we're designed to be a chalice and yeah. what original so that, that was our original destination original design we're designed to be a chalice a receptacle that is filled completely with the grace of god and original sin comes along and basically smushes us down until we're nothing in fact it'd be like melting this down into a ball and yep. if you think of grace as being a liquid that can fill something because we're designed to be filled to the brim with the grace um yep. well once once you're melted into a little ball you can't do much with grace you can't receive much grace now if you pour water on a ball some of it will stick um but not a lot of it but if you were to do if, if you had that metal ball and you struck it with a hammer and you made a divot all of a sudden some water can collect and so that's that initial moment that's particularly baptism in fact which opens us up it washes us mm -hmm. and makes us ready to receive grace um small at first but bigger over time um and the more we receive the sacraments particularly the more that we participate in the sacraments particularly the the eucharist um, which deepens that well um, by giving us the very body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. That is the process ongoing of abiding and uh, having the sanctifying grace dwell in you. So act actual grace is given to us in order to make us move. Act actual grace is what prompts you to initially receive baptism. It's what prompts you to initially have faith. And God gives that actual grace to people in order to prompt them to do good works. But all of those are always geared towards getting us back to that original state, uh, that original challenge shape in a sense um which is where we have the grace of god the very life of god dwelling in us yes. and that is sanctifying grace and so that's the difference between the two types of grace and so the process of the christian life the christian struggle is to grow and conform oneself more fully to the image of christ be perfect yep. as your father in heaven is perfect but again this is somewhat hyperbolic because it's very rare that people in this life will attain absolute perfection we don't need to get into discussion about purgatory necessarily but we all die attached in some capacity to, to sin but the process has to be an ongoing process god 
God will cover the rest. He doesn't expect us to be perfect, but he does expect us to aim for perfection. Yeah, and, because if you don't aim for it, you'll never really attain it. I mean, if you aim exactly. low, you're not going to get it. I mean, absolutely. I remember Mother Angelica turning up with this. Um, you know of Mother Angelica, right? You've heard of her before? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, she came up with this analogy. Uh, it was like when you're aiming at a target with a bow and arrow, you don't aim for the middle because you're going to go low, right? Yeah. So you aim for the top, so you hit the so you hit the middle. So it's like you aim for heaven. Oh, yeah, accidentally, you, you know, you got purgatory, but yeah. But I mean, you still get to heaven, of course. That's what the purpose for purgatory is—a purifying. It's not a salvific purpose. I mean, a lot of people um, object to uh, object to uh, purgatory for that reason, is because they they believe it to be a salvific um, mm -hmm. effect, not necessarily yeah. purification from impurities and attachment to sin and all that kind of stuff. But it's they see it as a salvific thing. Like you, ha you have to go to purgatory to be saved. Right, they yeah. they believe that, and so that's why they a lot of people object to it because it's just a misunderstanding. That's a discussion for another time. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I wanted to bring up was the example of the prodigal son and how you can leave the adopted. You once you become adopted by God, like an, an adopted son of God, um, you can leave that inheritance, and you also come back to it. So the question that I would want to ask is, when the prodigal son left. Was he spiritually dead before he came back? And of course, the answer would be yes. He was spiritually dead. He was not a member of that family. He had the ring put back on him. He had the, the sandals put, put, put back on. He became a member of the family again. And it was it was possible because the father was looking for him. That's another example of how the father wills the salvation of all. Is how he was looking. The father was looking for the son to return. He wasn't like, oh, man, I'm just going to let him do whatever he wants. I don't even care. You know, he, he did this, that, and everything else. I don't even care. But what he was doing is a perfect example of, as you've described, the love of God and how he is a father who loves us and looks after us, is he was looking for the son to return. He's waiting for him to return, and he embraced him when he returned. He was overjoyed and threw uh, celebrations and parties for him. Yeah. And and so we can see an example of that, of how even um, adopted, um, even after you, you become uh, God's adopted son in a way, you can still leave you know, become spiritually dead, wallowing all this filth and all this horrible garbage, but you can still come back even after mm -hmm. doing all of that. So we see examples of this um, all throughout the Bible. All over scripture. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, people, people falling away and then coming back and then, you know, they have to, and then they're, they're told to remain in the faith. Otherwise they, you know, they don't want to return like a, like a dog returns, uh, returns to its vomit, for example. That's another analogy that Paul uses. Um, how uh, Christians Peter used that as well. Second Peter two twenty two ish. That's one of those ones. If I'm Catholic, I don't have the whole Bible memorized chapter and verse. Oh, yeah, but that's one of those that, that always that sticks Peter out. That? <laughs> was that uh, Peter who said that, or did I get Peter that definitely says that? I mean, I think he's actually quoting a common saying, not quite a proverb, uh, maybe mm -hmm. a proverb, uh, but it's definitely a it's definitely a common saying. But that's in Second Peter two. But then you also think so. James says this. He says this, my brethren. So if he says my brethren, who's he speaking to? the believers, right? This is James 5, 19 uh, and 20 says, my brethren, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So, so James is speaking very clearly in that passage about people who are believers and who wander from the truth. Um, Peter, here's this passage from Peter for if they have a, is this uh, second Peter two verses 20, 22, um, and actually I don't even have the dog vomit part. That's the next one. Let me, let me pull up the full verse. Hang on just a second here. Um, copy and paste up here. And that's certainly not the only example that we have of. Oh no. Bible, oh, uh, telling us not to return to particular evil works. That's just a specific instance of it. 
but we do have examples of there's another verse that actually i had pulled up that i wanted to like while you're researching that one i can kind of go to this one okay and uh, this one is from john 15 verse 10 mm -hmm. and it goes as follows uh, if you keep my commandments you will remain in my love just as i have kept my father's commandments and remain in his love yes so all of these things there's like, a conditional yeah. statement there. If you keep the commandments, yeah. you will remain. And so yeah. there's a there's a conditional statement in there, and that condition yeah. is something that is based upon us. Um, yeah. It's not based, and and I know that some of our friends that we've had discussions with will say things like, "Oh, well, this is more of a normative description than it is a prescription, right?" So this is just a statement of fact. Like, if you happen to believe, then this will be. But if you actually read the language, it doesn't sound like that at all. He's not just describing incidentally true believers will remain. No, he's saying if you want to be a true believer, you got to be a true believer. If you want to be a true believer, you got to believe. Yeah. Another uh, difficult question is how do you determine whether or not somebody is really a christian you know you could say you know maybe they live their whole life they're a vibrant christian they do a lot of great stuff they're really committed they're really devoted and all that but then later on in life they do something horrible right you never would have expected it you never would have seen it coming but they they perform some kind of horrible evil act in mm -hmm. a totally blown way well, would you then say that well they were never really a true christian they may have been in the past they may have been even more devoted than you they may have been even more um involved in in their faith than you were yeah and so at that point in the past you would have said oh they're such a committed christian they're so devout they're so real man they're true but then they do this horrible thing at the end of their life maybe they don't turn away maybe they mm -hmm. don't you know maybe they don't repent of that but you can't yeah. use that to say well i guess they were never really a christian right they yeah. were never really a true blo uh, born again christian of course that's a very sad thing to experience when people do that yeah it, it does happen well so, bear in um, mind also yeah. God, God is the judge, right? Jesus is yeah. is the judge. He knows what's in our hearts. And so even in someone in that situation, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they actually have fully lost their faith. It doesn't mean that they've yeah. fully abandoned God. And it's the type of thing that we shouldn't presume to judge. That's the first thing I would say to something like that is it's very, very easy to say, oh, they did X. David killed a man. David, David committed adultery and then had the husband oh, killed, right? Oh, and yet he's a man after God's own heart. And by the end of his life, he had repented, and we know that God promised that he would sleep with his fathers and all these other things, right? So we could judge David based on that one thing, and yeah, it was a terrible thing, to be yeah. sure. I'm not downplaying that at all. Um, but nevertheless, uh, repentance is always there, like the prodigal son. You 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 don't lose your faith. You don't you don't have never have been a son because you left your father. You just cease yeah. to be his his son or under his charge or under his care because you have abandoned him. And that yeah. passage, the prodigal son, is one that there's so many things going on in that passage oh, that yeah. always just baffle baffle me. Because of course, and yeah. we don't need to go into all these necessarily, but like the the fact that you know the the son says, "Give me what's mine." He's basically saying, "You're dead to me," right? He's like, "I want what's my inheritance as though you are dead now." And so in a sense, he's already saying to his father, you are dead to me. Later, when he comes back, the father responds to the son who remained, all that I have is yours. Because in truth, all that he had was his, uh, because the, the other son had already taken his inheritance and left. And yet he still rejoices and cares for him and provides for him. And so that, that son gets, the, the, the prodigal son gets nothing in a sense, because everything is gone, or at least that seems to be what the passage indicates. But I can never, can never quite tell. And I, I think part of it is, you know, if you, if you think of a circle, and, you know, this is all the father's goods and he was going to split it between the two sons. Uh, well, this son took his and squandered it. This is all that's left. All that's left will eventually pass to the other son. But in the meantime, you know, the father is still alive. He can take it and work with it. And he can expand it more and more. And so maybe the son gets something else. I don't know. There's so many weird things going on in that passage. But uh, that's that's totally a side question. But it's it's, it's 
stuck in my head now that we're talking about that passage. <laughs> There's other things as well, but that's just the stuff that always just, I, I never know how to take it. And, and I always, I always kind of feel for the prodigal son or for the, for the son who stayed at home as well. I understand his, his mm. indignance. <laughs> I think sometimes we all kind of feel that, that level of, of indignant. Yeah. Here is uh, oh, go ahead. No, I was just agreeing with you, but yeah, there's um, you had something else you want to bring up. I was just going to pull up that uh, passage I mentioned earlier. So oh, this is what yeah, Peter yeah. says. This is second Peter uh, 20 and following. Uh, and he says this, if after they've escaped the defilements of the world, he's talking about believers um, and they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ, they've been saved. That's what he is saying. If after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overpowered. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For if they, for it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb the dog turns back to his own vomit and the sow is washed only to wallow in the mire. Which I think is really interesting that he's actually using, uh, I mean, I know that. That Peter at this point totally is on board with the kosher laws not being binding, but the fact that that he's using a, a proverb about a, an unclean animal, the the sow, and but I always think that's fascinating. But so there's there's that passage. But he's clearly speaking about believers who believe and then cease to believe. Jesus gives the parable of the seed, and the the seed is the is the word that people receive, um, and it falls on different kinds of soil, and the seed still sprouts. It actually sprouts and actually grows in a number of. Uh, places where it grows, um, but sometimes it then gets choked off. That doesn't mean it wasn't really seed growing. It just means yeah. it withered and it died. And of course, that what that really is saying, of course, I've always understood anyway, is, to, is you know, the soil can't change itself, but we're not actually soil. And so yeah. we should always be cultivating ourselves. We should always be preparing ourselves so that we're more able to receive the word and bear fruit and bear fruit in abundance. Right. That's yeah. that's the whole point of, of the gospel message is, is to, to receive it and to bear fruit. And and Peter even hints at this. He says it would have been better if they would have never known, because if you know when you abandon, that's worse than simply not knowing. Uh, Jesus yeah. points this out in a couple different parables. One of them is in Luke 12, where he talks about the the four different stewards in the house. And one of them knows the will of the master and does it and is rewarded greatly. One of them knows the will of the master and does the opposite and beats the maidservants. And he actually is, is cut in half and, and placed out with the unbelievers. So this is definitely an eschatological uh, passage about salvation. And then there's two others, one who knew the will of the master and just kind of you know, took his time and did nothing. And he receives a severe beating, but he isn't kicked out of the kingdom. And then there's one who didn't know the will of the master and he gets off with a, a very light punishment. And I always thought that that kind of, you know, that speaks to this sort of thing. And, and, and this is something that gets really, really nuanced in a lot of ways, but I think it bespeaks to the truth of the justice and mercy of God that he only expects from us what we are able to accomplish. And so for those who simply don't know, they will be judged far less harshly and they will be given uh, some sort of uh, option or some sort of way uh, to potentially embrace salvation. That doesn't mean every single one of them will, um, but we know that God again, wheels of salvation of also taking those as axiomatic statements. Um, it's easy to see how what Peter's talking about makes sense. And you know, Peter, uh, Jesus talks about this as well. He talks about the, the scribes and the Pharisees and he says, you know, you, you say that you see, and so your sin remains. If you didn't see, you would not have sin. But since you say we see your sin remains, that's John nine, I think, or John 11, somewhere around there. Um, and you know, the more, and he also says the more, who, those who have more, more is expected. The, you know, then the, the flip side is yes. those who have less, less is expected. And so the more, you know, the, the more responsible you are 
for continuing in your salvation, but also the greater works you will be able to do. But if you're on that path and then you go apostate, you turn around, you cut yourself off, you make a shipwreck of your faith, as St. Paul says, uh, then you're not going to make it to the end. You're a shipwreck uh, unless somebody comes along and picks you up or or helps you restore your ship again, which would be the process of repentance. Um, You know, as opposed to somebody who doesn't know any better, you know, they're going to be judged far less harshly. And again, that bespeaks a God who is love and justice and mercy. And also we see a couple other examples of this kind of thing in uh, Romans eleven twenty two, where it says uh, that we must persevere in God's kindness. Otherwise, we will be cut off. Oh, yeah. And uh, we need to persevere in these things. And there's another passage. It's actually a kind of scary one or it's scary as much as it, uh, it teaches you the necessity of, you know, keeping watch of yourself. Um, and it is Revelation 3, 3, and it goes as follows. It is remember then how you accepted and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not watchful, I will come like a thief, and you will never know at what hour I will come upon you. So that's pretty pretty mm-hmm. uh, startling stuff there that we do need to keep watch and not slip up yeah. because Jesus could come back for us. I mean, whether it's our whether it's our death or you know the end of the world or whatever it is, our end will come, and we need to be prepared for that. And we see other other analogies like with the uh, the uh, the the virgins with the uh, with the uh, with the oil lamps and all that mm-hmm. that we need to be prepared we need to prepare ourselves for when uh we are taken from this life and uh we need to be ready for that we can't just lounge around and say well i i'm predestined i'm predestined for heaven i'm this that and everything else and so i i don't really need to get ready i don't really need to prepare myself i mean I, it's optional um you know if i'm already saved and i can't really do anything to get out of that then i don't really need to prepare i don't need to be ready for jesus and these like like you know these verses describe i don't really need to be ready and prepared and you know i don't need to do all these things if i'm going to be saved it's not even necessary it's just optional well and going back to that revelation passage like the next two verses are actually right in line with that as well so verse four says uh yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Mm-hmm. So these people have received a white garment, and yet it is possible to besmirch and to soil that white garment. Uh, and then he says this in verse 5, he who conquers shall be clad thus in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, if he can blot your name out of the book of life, what does that mean? It means at one point your name was in the book of life and then it gets blotted out and it gets blotted out because you besmirched that white garment because you didn't conquer, but were conquered. And so this is, again, uh, a, uh, a prescription. <laughs> he is telling you something that you need to be doing and yeah. you need to do it. And if you don't do it, then you're not going to abide. And again, to abide is just the constant, continuous message all over uh, scripture, just just everywhere. That is the, the constant lesson. You mentioned uh, Romans 11 earlier, and I love that passage because that's where I think Paul talks about uh, you know, the Gentiles being grafted into the vine. Uh, cool. And once you're grafted in the vine, and Jesus is the true vine, you're grafted into Jesus. You are actually grafted into Jesus. But he also says, if the natural branches were pruned away, uh, don't think God won't spare you, so bear good fruit. So if you don't bear good fruit, which is an action that you choose to do uh, in in passive, uh, in, in obedience, right, then you will be grafted off. And also he even says, um, here's this, hang on. Some of the branches were broken off. This is verse 17 and following. 
Uh, some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share in the riches of the olive tree. Don't boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember, it is not you that supports the root, but the root that supports you. Again, it's not us doing the grace. It's it's us cooperating with grace and grace doing the good things. And he it's says, you will say... Grafted, um, what? I was going to say, it's, it's uh, because we're engrafted in Christ like that, that we can even do any of these things and mm -hmm. uh, as jesus says you know without him we can do nothing so these exactly. supernatural works i would say supernatural not just natural um uh virtuous things that we could do just to be nice to other people but i'm exactly. talking about like supernatural like meritorious works that actually yeah. do something that actually affect something you can't do those without jesus right you can be virtuous you can be nice you can make a difference in the world and you'll be a friendly person but these kind of supernatural meritorious works that are um prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in and by the way it says that we should as a, yeah. as a, it's not a recommendation. It's like, well, you could walk in these. It's a good idea to walk in these. No, you should, should consider it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, you can continue. So then Paul says, uh, verse 19, uh, you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast only through faith. So do not then uh, become proud. But stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you, you who are actually grafted in. Note then mm. the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even the others, if they do not persist in their unbelief, will be grafted back in. For God yeah. has the power to graft them back in again. For if you've been cut from what is uh, what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted by contrary nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back onto the olive tree? And so this is his whole back and forth. And he's not just speaking about the Gentile people, because salvation is an individual thing. It's open yeah. to all the Gentile people, but it doesn't mean that because of the disbelief in some Gentiles, all Gentiles will be cut off. He's speaking individually to each person uh, as being uh, grafted onto the tree. And the thing that is the, the determining factor is whether or not you are bearing fruit. If you don't bear fruit, you get pruned off. And he even says elsewhere, and Jesus uses this wording as well, the, the branches that are pruned off are gathered up to be burned. But mm. if they wind up bearing fruit, like you can cut off branches. They're still alive. They can actually start to bud. Um, I've mm. talked to horticulturists and, and, and tree people, <laughs> whatever, and they'll actually attest to this. And so if if the, the the branches even cut off with what's remaining in them can start to bear fruit, can start to do good, they'll be grafted back on. And that is, in fact, the very nature of repentance. Now, there it seems like he's talking in a sense about the Jewish people in a sense, but he's also talking about individuals, the people who grew up in the Jewish faith but hadn't rejected or hadn't accepted Christ, who can then still subsequently accept him as their Messiah uh, moving yeah. forward. So anyway, I love that passage from from Revelation or from Romans 11. Yeah, it's beautiful. I forgot what I was just going to make a point. Oh, um, there was another passage I had here. Um, wait, no, I think I read all of them. Um, I had uh, something I was going to say. I forget what I was going to bring up next. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So I, want, I wanted to talk about uh, the two different kinds of predestination. Um, there are those, we can talk about those who are predestined to, this was actually a topic um that Jimmy Aiken and James White talked about in their debate was um, the difference between being predestined to initial salvation and being predestined to final salvation. And mm -hmm. uh, James White made the argument that there was no actual difference be between the two and that there isn't a biblical dis uh, distinction between, the, between those two, between those who are uh, predestined to initial salvation, but not final salvation. And uh, the points that Jimmy made, he brought up dozens of biblical, uh, dozens of Bible verses that described those who, um, who were um, 
predestined for initial salvation, but didn't actually make it all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. And uh, we even see that in Luke. We see uh, an example of those who believe for a while, but then fall away in temptation and all that. Those who don't have a strong root yep. and uh, all that. So we, we have examples of people who are predestined to initial salvation, but they are not predestined to final salvation. And I think that's because God knows that they will continually resist him throughout their life. And so why would he give them, knowing the decisions that they're going to make, why would he give them the grace continually if he knows for a fact that they will continue to resist it throughout the course of their life? And I think that could be one way of understanding it is that God sees everything all at once. It's not like he sees it as it's happening or he yeah. sees it like a little while before it happens. Because it's everything now. all in one, yeah, in, in one eternal now, because he is not constricted by um, the temporal temporal universe, right? He's not, He's not limited by time or by motion. He's outside of those things. And so he is uh, he sees everything all at once and one and one sort of image. And so I think a way of understanding it could be that God knows that certain people will continue to either reject him or accept him um, all throughout their life. And so he gives obviously he would give more grace to those people who whom he knows will continue to accept him throughout their life. And uh, mm-hmm. that could be one way of understanding the difference between uh being predestined to initial salvation and being uh, predestined to final salvation. Now, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that, any kind of... uh, I've heard this discussion. I've heard Jimmy Aiken talk about it. I've heard Trent Horn talk about it. And what they're positing is a way to understand it. I don't think it's the official teaching of the church because there isn't an official teaching about all of these different issues, and that's totally fine. Um, My understanding is that this is one way to square the text um, and and make it make sense. But I honestly think it's a simpler issue than that personally. I think it's simply that we can choose to refuse. It's it's that simple. So it's not as God can get your attention initially, but you can just be so predisposed to say no that you just continuously say no. Salvation is still a two-way street. God is still omnipotent. Uh, but part of his, his omnipotence is... Uh, such that he is so powerful, he can work out all of his ultimate ends while cooperating with us insofar as we're willing to cooperate and allowing us to refuse him insofar as we are willing to refuse him. Um, that he doesn't give everybody that there, there are some weird tension points. I'm not going to say that there aren't. Um, you know, if 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 I have faith that sprouts like like seed on a rocky soil, um, you know, why not strike me down while while this, the sprout is sprouting before I have a chance for it to wither and, and to fall away, right? Um, but again, I think part of that is we're trying to stretch very, very wisely conducted or constructed proverbs. We're trying to stretch them a little too far and get a little too much uh, out of them. Uh, but I think I think it's a, it's a much simpler thing than that. I think that salvation is a two-way street and we can just become habitually vicious, habitually dispossessed, dispo, dipo, what is the word I'm looking for? Shoot. Uh, <laughs> D- dispossessed. No. Uh, I think I know what you're trying to say. Hold on. Uh, uh, we can build up a habitual disposition is what I'm trying to say. We have okay. a perpetual disposition. Uh, there's a different word that's related there and it's tip of the tongue syndrome. Anyway, um, but we can become basically inclined to always reject grace uh, or to work with grace continuously. And God works with us in that level. But at the end of the day, he chooses not to, or he doesn't force us ultimately, because again, otherwise we're puppets, you know, yeah. the, the position really be blamed or, held accountable for anything if it's not ultimately our choice you know um if the if our choices don't actually matter and it's really just dependent on what god says and what god chooses then we can't really be blamed or held accountable for anything no because we didn't we couldn't choose anything else 
No, so and that's that's is, my big issue with this whole concept of God, double predestination, and and everything being utterly and completely up to God, and us having no part at all to play. Besides it flying in the face of Scripture and just simply feeling unreasonable and feeling unnatural, what that really does is, you know, as, as opposed to the Catholic position, which says all the good we do is God's because that's how grace works, but all the bad we do is ours. That literally makes it almost the opposite. And all the good we do is still God's, but all the bad we do is also God's because he's making us do it. Right. And and mm-hmm. for someone who is omnibenevolent, the, the source of all goodness to, to actively will us like puppets to sin just doesn't make a lot of sense. Luther, uh, I think talks about this. He says, you know, mm-hmm. we, we have no free will of our own and it's just, we're, we're like a, a beast of burden with a saddle on. And sometimes Jesus is in the saddle and sometimes the devil's in the saddle and you know, you go wherever the rider wants to go. Um, and, which I think is a pretty, uh, sad way of, of looking at, uh, the, yeah. the very nature of our, of our own humanity. It seems really, especially when of, you, when you consider Sad. the fact that we were created to be in relationship with God, we were created pure, we were created in innocence. Mm-hmm. And that's really the state that we're trying to get back to. That's that's the whole purpose of the Christian life is to revert back to that state of being God's friend, being in the presence of God and being filled with the life of God. That's the whole purpose of sanctification is to get back to that state of being in relationship with God, continually being sanctified and continually um, loving God, I, I think that's a lot of what this is about. Is just trying to, trying to um, bend our nature back to God, and it's always in resistance because of original sin. That's the battle. You know, that's the battle that we always face. Is that we're trying to get back to what we were before we fell. We're trying to get back to that relationship with God, and uh, that's where a lot of the uh, conflict comes from. Whether it's resisting evil works, making sure to persist in good works. So what it's all about is returning back to our, 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 you know, our original state of being in a relationship with God. And uh, that's, you know, that's, that's really what it's all about is just trying to, you know, get back to what we were in a way of, you know, maintaining that relationship with God. And, you know, that's one way of looking at it. So, yeah. Yeah. I agree. You know, here's here's the words of uh, John in his first epistle, John, First John, two twenty eight. Now, little children, abide, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. That always struck me as, you know, when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, and you know, the the end of verse, uh, the end of of chapter two, they're they're naked, they feel no shame. Seven verses later into chapter three, and they've eaten of the fruit, they're naked. They feel ashamed. They hide from each other, and then they hear they hear God coming in the garden, and they hide from Him too. And so that original sin, that that broken human nature that came through Adam, uh, it 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 rippled throughout all of humanity. In fact, so you see this initial distrust between the man and the woman. They see that they can use each other, so they they cover themselves. Uh, they they see that they've done wrong in the sight of God, so they hide from God, who is their Maker. And at the end, uh, it, it even breaks man's relationship with the world around him. You know, thorns and thistles shall the the, the earth yield you, and and by the sweat of your brow shall you earn your bread until you die for your dust and to dust you shall return right so literally when when that first sin happened um and and again genesis is using somewhat figurative language here so we don't know the full scope of what happened but we do know this is real primordial human history and it's explaining in a really profound way how an omnibenevolent all good all powerful god could create a world that has so much good in it and yet nevertheless has evil because god could or should be able to stamp evil out unless part of the plan is to work with us and for us to be free and in order to be free to to say yes you have to be free to say no if you're not free to say yes or free to say no you're just 
a puppet. And if you're a puppet, then yeah, all the glory goes to God, but you know, good for the puppet, right? Cause it's, it's just a puppet. It, it really makes no difference. It's like a, I said this the other day, it's like a, a mannequin, you know, it's, it's far better in one sense for a mannequin to be in pre COVID <laughs> Saks fifth Avenue, you know, window display showing off the, the latest fashions and wares than it is for it to be out back in a dumpster fire burning. But the mannequin has no choice, whether it's in the window on display or in the dumpster fire, it did nothing either way to, to merit either one just incident oh some mannequins are burning out back and this mannequin's in the window and on a, a double predestination view where everything is utterly up to god and we have no part to play we're nothing but mannequins and whether we wind up burning in the dumpster fire or or in the display window has nothing to do with us at all and in which case i mean literally your whole impetus to evangelize is gone other than if you're saved, you're going to do it anyway, because he's going to make you because you're his good little puppet. Um, but I, I, I think it's far better to see us cooperating with God and learning to cooperate with him, following the law of love written in our hearts, guided by the Holy Spirit and, and seeking to be further and further conformed to the image of his son. So I think That's I think really that important. that presents a far more human, uh, humanizing, humanistic, uh, in a good way, uh, picture of humanity, um, a far more ennobling picture of humanity than we're just puppets or mannequins. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to say. Uh, is that we are. That's the whole purpose of the Christian life is to be conformed to the image of Christ, and uh, that's tremendously important. And uh, that's really what we're called to do. And the only way we can do that is through our free choice. Mm -hmm. As that we continually choose to be conformed to the image of Christ through performing these works that were set before us, yep. and uh, yeah, it's it's important stuff. Yep. And if if we abide, it's because we're cooperating with grace, and so all of the glory goes to the grace still. But if we don't abide, it's because we chose not to. We opted not to. It's still on us completely. It absolves God of the of the the moral weight of our failings, um, but mm -hmm. still gives Him full credit for all of our glory. And that seems to be the way that it should actually work out because again, he's the source of all goodness. He's not the source of wickedness and evil and deceit, except insofar as, you know, light is the cause of darkness because, because of light shadows can exist, right? It doesn't mean the light makes the shadow. In fact, it's, it's the blocking of the light that makes the shadow in the same way. It's the blocking of the good or the following of a lesser good that, that makes for, makes for evil at the end of the day. But in God permits that to happen. He doesn't will it in a positive sense, but he allows it. And out of it, as St. Thomas says, he brings, a greater good so anyway those are my thoughts on predestination and salvation <laughs> in a nutshell yeah that, was, yeah that was interesting stuff it's been something i've been wanting to talk about again for a while and especially after watching that debate or listening to it rather it was it was really good man it was jimmy aiken was i'm sorry he's just on fire jimmy aiken did amazing i mean james was smart i mean he's also a smart guy james white you know very smart guy i've seen his other mm -hmm. debates with uh with other people um you know intelligent guy but man jimmy aiken was just on fire that whole time man yeah. But well, yeah, James, so I, I will say to our listeners, I, I like James White a lot in a lot of ways. I think his ideas of Catholicism are totally like he's fighting oftentimes against a straw man that's not Catholicism, but it's a very well constructed pseudo straw man. Um, yeah. But I think he does a really good job with lots of other things. I've really enjoyed and learned a lot listening to him talk about, um, you know, how we know Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, I, I really enjoyed listening to him talk to and debate uh, Muslims about the, the mm -hmm. Quran and the Bible. Um, there's other guys out there as well. I like David Wood does a lot of stuff with Muslims and, and Islam, but, um, so I, I really appreciate Dr. White. I think he's a very smart guy and I, I pray for his conversion. I know his sister's Catholic and she, she prays for his conversion yeah. as well, but Jimmy Aiken, I mean, there's a few people in this world that live in my head. One of them is a, a gruff old priest, father Gerard, 
who, whenever I teach RCA, uh, he's always like, make sure that you tell them they need to belong to a parish and they need to tithe and <laughs> everything else. So in my head, I always have Father Gerard. I'm like, okay, I need to tell you guys that you know you need to belong to a parish. You need to support your parish to the best of your ability and all these other things because because he lives there. But but Jimmy Aiken also lives in my head quite often. And he actually was in, instrumental in, in my, uh, I guess I'd say, reversion to the faith. And so I, I try to follow, as Paul says, be imitators of me as I'm an imitator of Christ. Well, Jimmy is also an imitator of Paul and an imitator of Christ. And so I oftentimes seek to, to be an imitator of him. Uh, I, I love his candor and his style. He's a little nerdy, a little geeky, which, you know, speaks to my heart, but he's also very patient and very knowledgeable. And, you know, he's happy to walk people through it. I actually talked to him once. He actually called me. Here's a, here's a quick aside. Um, and we can talk about the Petron office at some other point in the, the papacy, but, but Jesus calls Peter, Peter, but the Aramaic is, is Kepha, K-E-P-H-A. And my oldest son is named Kepha. I wanted to call him because I was just so moved by this argument. I called him, I called wow. him Kepha, but I was panicking that we we're going to call him the wrong thing because is it Kepha? Is it Kephas? Sometimes you'll see K-E-P-H-A or K-E-P-H-A-S. Oftentimes it's, it's C-E-P-H-A-S. So I was like, which is the right one? At the time, I didn't have the linguistic skills I have today, but I, I, I made an educated guess. Fortunately, I got it right because he called me after we'd already named him. <laughs> Uh, but he actually called me because uh, I submitted a, an email request on his, his website, jimmyakin.com. You guys can go there. It's worth your time. Um, and he called me. And we talked about it for a while. For those who are wondering, so the the, the word in, in Aramaic is kepha. Uh, when you transliterate it from Aramaic into Greek, it becomes what is often uh, kephas. Uh, oftentimes, when you then transliterate it from Greek into English, you get what looks like cephas, C-E-P-H-A-S. Mm. Uh, but if you were to transliterate directly from Aramaic into English, you would get K-E-P-H-A, kepha. And so that is uh, the name of my firstborn son, Kepha Matthias, the first uh, first pope and the uh, first apostolic oh. successor. So <laughs> that's awesome. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's that's really cool. I wish I there could talk go. to one of them. I've I've always wanted to uh, talk to Trent. I've been more of a. I mean, Jimmy Aiken is like a walking encyclopedia, and he's awesome. But yeah. I've uh, been more of a fan of like Trent's work recently. I mean, especially with his rebuttals that he's been doing on YouTube. I mean, that's amazing stuff. And I don't know if anyone else has been who's been doing stuff like that. I mean, the last one that he made was like over three hours. <laughs> yeah. No, I saw that, and I was I was so glad yeah. he did that. But I will say this: if you look at the history of his rebuttal videos, I actually did a rebuttal video to one of Mike Winger's videos, and really? I did it about three months before Trent Horn did his, and his was in the same style as mine. Just hit play, talk. Even his thumbnail is like the same as my thumbnail. So I really think he saw my video because at the time I even had people commenting on my video. Wow, this is the only video I've ever seen. Why don't more Catholics do this stuff? And within about three or four months, Trent Horner put out a video. Now, of course, he's way more prolific because he does this for a living. I, I do it as a hobby. Yeah. Um, but I I think there's a chance he saw my video and and kind of aped my style. Okay. I can I can send you a link at some point, or maybe I'll even include him below this uh, this video once it's live on the Facebook group. But I really I think I influenced Trent Horn. I'm not I'm not a hundred percent, but I think I influenced Trent Horn. <laughs> Yeah, and and he even started that. with the same Mike Winger video too. It was, it was like literally the same video I was doing. So I mean, it was one, it was one of big Mike Winger's big uh, cavalcades against the Catholic church. But mm. anyway, so. I mean, that takes some real dedication to uh, go through the whole series like that of all the videos and just, and I mean, if I had the time, well, I don't know if I would be able to do that. Um, I would be honest. But, if, if you have a passion for it and you, yeah. all you need is a couple hours and you don't even need that. Cause I, uh, so Mike Winger's video is like an hour and a half long, the one that I did. And the first video I shot was over an hour long. And I got through about seven minutes of his video because I kept stopping and giving a size. Cause you know, it's easy to make a claim, but oftentimes it takes one sentence to make a claim. It takes a paragraph at least to undo and explain why that claim is wrong. And so I kept pausing and, and, and reiterating whatnot. So you can just do it in chunks. Um, but there's lots of software out there you can use for that. 
Uh, there's free software out there. Uh, Loom, use Loom as one. Uh, there's a couple others. And you can literally just hit play and hit play and just pause the video and talk and pause the video and talk. Obviously, it makes sense to go through it once beforehand, once or twice before, and then take some notes so you know the things you want to bring up. But uh, you know, you get pretty good at it. You can you can do it off the cuff. And I think it's it's there's definitely a hunger for it out there. And and I would encourage you to, yeah. to give it a shot. It's worth your time. Yeah, there's not as many people doing that kind of thing, and it's more of a relaxed thing too. It's not as much of, um, us, you know, like an like a debate or anything like that. It's more of just you know, you sit down, you watch the video, you let the person talk, and you just kind of give your commentary. And it's mm -hmm. it's much more it's much more palatable than a strict like debate video. Like, oh, this person's wrong. I'm going to show you how he's wrong. You know, if people get super upset, and you know, that's something I was I was thinking about is um maybe we could do something like that um on the page eventually, you know, some kind of watch party where, you, you know, look at certain videos, we kind of pause to look at them or something like that, you know, add some commentary if you want. I don't know. Yeah, if that's, that, that could definitely be, uh, that could be a good time. I'm, I'm yeah. definitely in favor of that in the future. I, and again, even Pastor Mike, he has lots of great stuff. You know, I'm not here yeah. to, to just speak against him. I think if, if what we're saying is true and Catholicism is in fact the fullness of the truth, then anybody who comes at Catholicism is going to be wrong. However, um, that being the case, that doesn't mean that everything they say is going to be wrong. And in fact, they could be right about a great many things. And I think that when, just like, just like um, James White, like when he goes after a non-Christian group or even like a pseudo Christian group, like the Jehovah's witnesses or the Mormons, he does a really good job of, of understanding yeah. their points. And, and I know this because I've actually talked with, uh, Mormons in the past, and they actually thought that I was a Mormon because I was I was fascinated, not in a I want to convert sense, but just I wanted to know their faith. I read a couple of books about it, and like, did you used to be Mormon? So I was at least knowledgeable enough that I passed as a Mormon who had made it through the temple, um, but I, uh, I I never did. It's just so I, I understood their faith. So it's very very important to understand the faith. But I think that for whatever reason, there's blinders on when it comes to Catholicism. And uh, unfortunately, that means that whenever they approach Catholicism, they, they come at it with some presuppositions that are going to naturally make their answers incorrect, but they still have a lot of good stuff out there. And yeah. so I definitely respect, again, Pastor James uh, White, mm -hmm. Pastor Mike Winger, and all these other guys. Yeah, both of them, uh, yeah, both of them have actually debated atheists in the past. I remember Mike Winger uh, debated, it was a while ago, he debated uh, Matt Delahunty, actually, on the uh, resurrection. And um, I know that uh, Jeff... Um, I'm not, I'm sorry, not Jeff. Uh, that's Jeff Durbin is the other guy. Um, James actually debated, um, he had a group debate with, um, I think, yeah, yeah, it was him. It was him, Jeff, and I forget what the other guy's name was, but they were debating three other atheists. And uh, it was epic. It was really, really good stuff. And uh, both of them are, you know, very, very intelligent people. Um, so I don't want to say any of these things as, you know, slights against them or anything like that. They're both, you know, very intelligent. They've debated atheists before, and I've watched those debates. And, you know, it's good stuff. So, uh, so yeah, um, I definitely, I don't think I could hold my own in a, in a debate against them. That's why I leave that kind of stuff up to uh, Trent and Jimmy. <laughs> so, so yeah, but yeah, it's uh, cool stuff. Here we go. I'm going to do this really quickly. Can you see my screen? Oh. Uh, so yes, awesome. this is, this is his video. Why Catholicism is wrong. Rebutted part one. This is from about eight months, eight, eight months ago. You'll see the, the grayed out style, the, the big rebutted thing. That's his. So here's mine from over a year ago. And it's the same thing. I took his, his, uh, headline and I put the big false on and everything else, but mine's from over a year ago. Uh, Trent of course has you know, more views and everything else. He's got 35,000 views. I've only got like, you know, 2.6 thousand views or whatever. So, but I just pulled it up really quickly. I'm like, yeah, I can, I can prove it. Oh, and also I had a, I had a sweet cameo from uh, one of the few good lines from the last Jedi, which you can see there. Yeah. But anyway, that was, sure. that's kind of a non sequitur, but I had to, I had to share that. And I don't know how to turn off my screen share here. Uh, oh, that's all right. But yeah, I mean, we could, 
yeah, I mean, that'd be awesome to look at videos like that and just kind of analyze. I mean, we could even watch yours or something. I mean, um, but yeah, I mean, pick my I videos apart. <laughs> what is this idiot talking about? Oh my gosh, he's the worst, literally. But yeah, yeah. I mean, um, moving forward, I'm happy we can we can make that part of our uh, part of our schedule. And, yeah. uh, you know, every, every couple of Thursdays we can dedicate it to, to watching a video. We'll, we'll pick it out beforehand and we can each like pre-screen it once or twice and then come together and watch it together and play, pause, yeah. play, pause. I think there's a way to do that via StreamYard. Um, I'll have to figure that out if it's, if it's possible or not. Obviously I could show yeah. you my screen. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can play a video or not, but if, if not, I actually have other uh, software we can use where we would have to shoot it beforehand and then upload it via StreamYard or just upload it to Facebook or whatever. Mm. Um, we, there's ways to do it anyway. So I'll look into whether or not that's possible, but if, if it's possible, that'd be a lot of fun. So, yeah, that'd, yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, there's a lot of videos out there. I know of uh, a few videos I've seen actually I've seen the thumbnails of um, a few um, Protestant videos that have come out recently. And um, I think there was, this, I forget his name, but there, there are a few of them out there um, who are, you know, making making videos which is good um yeah. but yeah so it'll be fun it'd be awesome to do that and uh you know we could pick them up beforehand and we can they could be like maybe i wouldn't want to make them too long we could um watch like maybe a 15 minute video and then have like maybe 45 minutes to talk about it afterward or maybe that's disproportionate oh yeah it could be like a maybe 15 20 minute video yeah. um but yeah so we'll yeah, figure that out We'll figure yeah. that out after the fact. So, alrighty. Well, I think it's been a good talk. I think we're kind of wrapping yep. up here. Do you have any any parting words or or comments before we close out for the night? Well, well I just want to thank you for being here and thank you for giving your commentary. This is, as always, it's been a very very interesting talk. And uh, I just want to apologize if I was starting a little bit. I these I'm still not kind of used to the live streaming thing. It's still just a little makes me a little nervous. But I, I'm getting comfortable with it now. Getting more comfortable. But uh, anyway, so yeah, it's this just was hanging awesome. out and having a conversation online. So no, no big deal there. But uh, yeah, no, absolutely. My pleasure. I love doing this stuff. Uh, yeah. Thursday nights is I think going to be our th theology Thursdays, which is great. Yeah. Uh, I teach the I teach for, for those watching. If anyone makes it to this part in the video, <laughs> the last five minutes, or I teach RSA on Thursday nights. So I just got through doing like a two, uh, hour and a half, almost two hour long, uh, mm -hmm. straight through discussion about the church and whatnot, which is great. It gets me all pumped up and jazz. But sometimes I feel like my voice is about to give out. So if I ever like I'm really, really raspy and I can't can't quite talk that's that's what's yeah. going on there so but all right yeah. well i will hopefully we'll be doing this on a regular basis you know 10 yeah. p.m my time 11 p.m your time on thursdays and for those of you who are still watching feel free to tune in uh that's 10 p.m uh, central uh, 11 p.m eastern which would be 8 p.m pacific and 9 mountain i guess um and if you're somewhere else in the world you can do the math on that yeah. <laughs> and uh all right we'll go ahead and end it here but god bless you guys and until next time we send you out as sheep amidst the wolves yes <laughs> Bye bye. <laughs>